This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ways to achieve optimal outcomes. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Government leaders face seemingly intractable public management crises and challenges that go to the core of effective governance. In every crisis, there is a message. It is a natural way of forcing change and breaking down old structures, shaking loose negative habits so that something new and better can take their place. What is an optimal outcome? Why does conflict beget conflict? And how can leaders break old patterns and habits to achieve optimal outcomes? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, author of Optimal Outcomes. So, Jennifer, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, Jennifer, one question I had from your book, Optimal Outcomes, is how can conflict be good for you? Well, the fact is conflict is part of our lives, whether we like it or not. (laughs) So the idea that we should push it away or pretend that it doesn't exist is, is not actually dealing with reality. So... Conflict is inevitable. It can be good for us in the sense that when we don't push it away, when we don't ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist, but we actually look at it and deal with it productively, it has been shown in research and also in, you know, anecdotally, my work with with thousands of people in all kinds of different organizations, um, that you can develop more innovative, more creative, more productive, productive solutions to, to problems when you actually deal with conflict head-on. So the research bears that out, and, and my own personal experience bears that out, and I imagine people listening as well have had that experience where you're sitting with someone you don't see eye-to-eye, and you work on something productively and find something, a solution that you hadn't thought of before. Jennifer, to what extent is the nature of conflict self-perpetuating, and why do we get stuck in conflict? Not all conflict is self-perpetuating. Some conflicts, and, and I imagine listeners as well have had this experience, sometimes something comes up, it's not working, put your head together with someone else, figure it out, and it's solved, it's done. There are all kinds of those routine kinds of conflicts. You know, I want the window open. You want the window closed. How are we going to work that out? I'm 
I'm hot, you're cold, and we can explore, you know, why do I, what are my reasons for wanting the window open? What are your reasons for wanting the window closed? And so, you know, there are conflicts like that that come up all the time that are a one-shot deal, not particularly complicated, can be solved by classic, now classic, win-win principled negotiation techniques, not particularly difficult, after, particularly after 40 years of, of kind of win-win negotiation being something that is taught in all kinds of organizations all around the world. In contrast to those kinds of more simple conflicts, there are conflicts that recur. No matter what we do, it seems like we're banging our head against the wall. No matter what we do, these conflicts are coming up again and again despite our good faith, multiple attempts to resolve them. Sometimes even, particularly if we think about the international landscape, there can be multiple good faith attempts on behalf of people who are professionally trained, mediators, diplomats, professionally trained to handle these kinds of conflicts, and yet they still recur. Right? We think we've solved them, and yet they're still coming back. So the question that I set out to answer a long time ago, about a decade ago in my research at Columbia University and on behalf of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that was funding all five years of my research, was why? Why do some conflicts resist resolution? And then once I finished those five years of research looking at all the very complex reasons why certain conflicts resist, and we can talk about those if you like, the next question is, well, given that there, we all have had that experience, right? I, I imagine there's not a person living on the planet who hasn't at some point or another had that experience of a conflict recurring. The question is, well, what do we do about it? So I've spent the last decade exploring that question in research and in practice with my graduate students at Columbia University and also with uh, clients across many different sectors for-profit, non-profit, in, in government, to figure out how can we free ourselves from these kinds of recurring conflicts. The way I conceptualize these recurring conflicts is that we have habits that we engage in that get locked in patterns with other people's conflict habits. I identify four of these conflict habits in the book. And when our conflict habit interacts with someone else's or another group, right? This can happen at the individual and the group level. When our conflict habit interacts with another person's conflict habit, it gets locked in a pattern of interaction that becomes self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing, very difficult to break. But the way to free ourselves from that locked pattern is simply to do something different, do something pattern-breaking, don't engage in my habitual conflict habit. Do something different. Ideally, something constructive, something simple, something perhaps surprisingly different from what I've done before. And that's how we free ourselves from these seemingly intractable patterns. I think, Jennifer, you call them conflict loops in your book. What exactly are conflict loops? That's exactly what I was just describing. So a conflict loop is any time you start to notice you are having the same fight over and over with someone, you're having the same argument over and over with someone. It may seem to be about a different issue, 
but the dynamic is similar. Um, so I, I can give you an example by talking about what exactly these four habits are. Uh, so one habit is we blame other people, right? So my intention, my good intention there might be I would like to win the argument. But when I do that habitually, it can become uh, where I am kind of blaming and attacking someone else, or at least they perceive me to be doing that. So that's one conflict habit. Second conflict habit is I'm not blaming someone else. I'm actually blaming myself. So I might be blaming and shaming myself. I've done something wrong. That's how I got into this predicament. What's wrong with me? So the good intention there is I'd like to learn and do better next time. But if I'm doing this in a habitual way, regardless of the extent to which I've actually contributed to the situation and made it what it is, I'm now stewing in negative self-talk, and that's not doing anyone any good. That's not getting us out of conflict. It's just keeping us stuck while I stew in my shame. So that's number two. Number three is shut down. So when we avoid conflict because the issue is not that important to us or the other person or people we're dealing with are not that important to us, that's great. That's a good intention, and that can often be helpful. But when we do that habitually, no matter what the situation actually calls for, we end up shutting down. The situation is kind of simmering, ready to boil over, often does boil over, and then we have to go deal with whatever has just blown up in our face. Um, So that habit can also get in our way. And then finally, the fourth conflict habit that I've identified is somewhat counterintuitive. We relentlessly collaborate. So in this day and age, so many of us, particularly who've grown up in organizations where collaboration is key to the functioning of the organization, we've been taught we must collaborate with others. And when we do that, around problems that require it and that are, that are uh, open to it, with people who are open to it, great. It can work wonders. It can create those kinds of creativity and productivity that we were talking about before. But when we relentlessly collaborate, we do it habitually, we don't know any other way to deal with conflict, particularly if we're dealing with people who are not willing to cooperate with us, then we're stuck, right? Many people may have had that experience of you're trying to collaborate with other people and they just will not do it. You are now stuck banging your head against the wall and it's not working. So if people are at all interested in this, there's actually a quiz that you can take online. Uh, if you go to the book website, it's called optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment you'll find this assessment, it takes about seven minutes to complete and it'll help you figure out which one of these habits is your primary conflict habit, um, which can be very helpful. And of course, you can send the quiz to your colleagues and friends and they can take it as well. And then you can see what's my habit, what's someone else's habit, what pattern have we gotten locked into? So, you know, if, if my habit, which it actually is, is to blame and attack other people, and I'm now locked in a conflict with someone else who has the exact same habit, you can imagine how well that's going, right? Not very. (laughs) Not very well. Um, Or if I have a a habit of I blame and attack, and the person I'm dealing with, their habit is shut down, also not particularly going anywhere helpful, right? Because I'm attacking them, and they're running away and hiding from me, and we're not getting anywhere. So there's all different, obviously, kinds of combinations of these habits that keep us stuck in these patterns on the conflict loop. 
And the, and the key again is how do we get out? So how do the patterns relate to each other? How do the conflict habits that you describe in your book, The Four, relate to the most common conflict patterns? Are they the same? Are they different? How are they connected to one another? Uh, I think in your book you mentioned five of the most common conflict patterns. Yes, exactly. So I just named two very conflict, uh, very common conflict patterns, right? Uh, attack, attack, or attack, shut down. Um, and there are five that I name in the book that are quite common. Um, and the way that the habits and the patterns relate to each other is really quite simple. It's just takes what you have to do is identify your own habit. And then, you know, we don't want to pigeonhole other people. Absolutely not. And that is not at all the purpose of identifying conflict habits. But it can be helpful to take our best guess. Given the way I'm experiencing someone else acting or speaking in the situation that we're in together, out of these four habits, which one of these habits do I think might be their primary one? If I have a good enough relationship with them, I can come right out and ask them, or I can even, again, refer them to this online quiz that they can take, and they can diagnose themselves, and then we can talk about it. But even if I don't have a good relationship with them like that, and it would be hard to talk about these things, I can ask myself to take my best guess, and I can then identify, all right, you know, maybe I'm relentlessly collaborating, and they are shutting down. Right? So I'm trying to collaborate with them, and they are just not answering me. That's another common one. So the first practice in the book is just noticing what pattern am I stuck in. We don't want to stay there, but that is a good first step. Once we notice the pattern, then we have the opportunity to pause and, and consider how we could actually break the pattern by doing something different than we've been doing before. What is the optimal outcome method? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report, Financial Management for the Future, at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report, Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner, breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler, author of Optimal Outcomes. So Jennifer, what is the Optimal Outcomes Method and what are the fundamental things that run through this whole practice? 
So the Optimal Outcomes is made up of eight practices that are designed to build on one another to help us free ourselves from recurring conflicts, to help us break the pattern that we're in. First of all, notice the pattern that we're in, then take action to break it. So the first few practices all have to do with noticing where we are today. And then the second half of the practices is all about how to build a path out of the conflict loop step by step. So the first practice is what we're talking about just now, which is notice your habits and the patterns that have been that you've been creating with other people. The second practice is map the conflict out. And we can talk much more about what that means and how to do conflict mapping. But again, this can be incredibly eye-opening for people. The practice after that is looking at your emotions. So how can you put your emotions to work for you rather than against you? Next, we're looking at values. What are your ideal values and what are what I call your shadow values? What are those values, those things that you care about that you might not even be willing to admit to yourself that you care about that are actually running the show, that are running your behavior that might be wreaking havoc on your relationships with other people. So this, again, can be very enlightening for people and really cause uh, people to have light bulb moments that shift their entire perspective on a situation. That's the first half of the optimal outcomes method where we're looking at what has been going on and just gaining insight. And then the second half is all about how to take steps out of that conflict loop. And so it begins with asking us to, rather than be looking back at what has happened in the past, where typically people are pointing fingers at other people, we're focused on what went wrong and who's to blame, we want to now look ahead at what do we want. So that's the first piece of imagining a new and better and different future. But also it's about imagining, not just using your rational thinking brain. So often we're taught that we need to, you know, particularly in contrast to a win-win principle negotiation methodology, which is very much about using your rational thinking brain. The point I'm really making in this book is that if our rational thinking brain could have solved this problem, it would have done so a long time ago, right? When you're dealing with recurring conflict, it's usually because all of those very rational, logical solutions haven't worked. So the key is to, at the very start, put on your imagination. And I offer, we can get into it if you'd like, but I offer lots of different ways to do that and examples in the book about how to do that. So the next practice is all about how to design a pattern-breaking path. And there are just a few qualities to a pattern-breaking path, which are basically we want that path to be simple because if you try to do something very complex in a situation that is probably already quite complex, which is why you've been stuck in the first place, you have a lot less control over the situation than you might think you do and uh, you could potentially make, end up making the situation worse, not better, which often does happen, right? So if we think about why conflict recurs, one of the reasons why is that in our efforts to try to fix or resolve something, we actually do things without thinking through 
the impact of our behavior and we can end up making things worse. So pattern breaking path is all about how to do something that's simple, but surprisingly different from what's been done before. And we can talk about how to, how do you know when you're, how do you create that? Um, and then testing your path. So a few ways to test your path. One is to do what I call mini experiments, which is simply to try out new behaviors in ideally in safe environments and test them out, see how they go, and then use those new behaviors in the situation that's been causing you grief or trouble. And testing your path also has to do with thinking ahead, kind of like a chess master on a chessboard. How can you think ahead about the potential unintended consequences of your own behavior now in the midterm and over the long term, and not only on yourself, but also on other people, and use that exercise to help you predict and prevent, ideally, making things worse and and enable you to make things better over time. Um, There are also, by the way, tons of resources on OptimalOutcomesBook.com on the website that people can use, because I know what I'm talking about, there's a lot here. <laughs> it's very meaty. And so, you know, it's just dense. And so uh, there are a lot of worksheets and ways that you can use those resources to help you do the work that we're talking about. Um, and then finally, the final practice is about choosing an optimal outcome. And that has to do with getting very clear about what are the costs you're paying for staying stuck in conflict what might be the cost you would pay if you try to pursue what you're considering now to be an optimal outcome? And what costs might you pay if you were to walk away from the situation entirely? And really taking a good hard look at the, both the benefits and the costs of each of those options and then making a conscious choice. Because I think we so often end up making those choices completely unconsciously because we are trying to avoid paying costs. But the truth is, we're paying costs probably, you know, all three of those options. And so the question becomes, which of these options is going to allow me to reap and the people around me to reap the highest benefit, the most benefits, the fewest costs, and allow me to engage in pattern breaking behavior. And that's how we know what our optimal outcome is. Jennifer, I'd like to delve into each of the uh, eight areas that make up your optimal outcomes method. And the first practice and the idea that you convey is the term pause to observe. Yes, absolutely. This can be challenging. You know, I don't want to um, minimize it. This is something that has become more and more popular in the mainstream, in mainstream American culture, and certainly I think worldwide as well. And for some people, it comes more easily than others. But what I have definitely found uh, over the years working with thousands of clients as well as for myself personally, the more we take the opportunity to pause and observe in our regular daily life when things are kind of not in crisis mode, the more likely we are to have the capacity to also pause and observe when we're in a tough situation. So I highly recommend, and this just does not need to be a huge commitment, right? So 
I'm not saying to you, you must roll out your yoga mat and spend hours per day, you know, meditating or doing yoga. It could be a 30-second pause on your daily commute that you look out the window from whatever it is that you've been doing on your phone or on your computer and just look out the window. Or when you're going to get coffee or when you're going to get your lunch out of the fridge or (laughs) buy your lunch down the street, just take a moment to stop or even while you're walking, right? There's walking meditation. Just pause and notice what's going on around me, what's going on inside of me, how am I feeling, right? You can choose one very simple question to ask yourself, like how am I feeling or what's going on? It could be that you look at a particular picture. So I have on my screensaver on my computer for many years, a picture that I took of a statue of the Buddha in Cambodia 15 years ago that remains on my screen so that whenever I'm switching computer applications, I just see it. And sometimes I look at it and I take a breath and then I go, you know, back into my email or whatever it is. So it can be that simple. But really my experience is the more we proactively do those pauses, the easier it is for us to pause in when we're in reaction mode. Yeah, it's it's sort of a muscle memory thing you point out. You know, one of the things I noticed in your book and you said, you know, the book is about how to become free from conflict. But you point out how language can either help or hinder the process. How important is the use of terminology in how you cast things? I think it's incredibly important, much more important than we think that it is. So in the book, I talk about how, you know, just the difference between calling something a conflict versus calling it a tough situation. I don't even know if you can hear it as I say those words, but there, there is a difference. Or calling someone my colleague versus calling someone my friend versus calling someone my counterpart versus calling someone, you know, I, my, um, my opponent. Those all have different connotations to them and they can impact how we view a situation. So I do encourage people when you find yourself stuck, see if it has an impact for you you know, to say we're dealing with a tough situation here versus using more conflict kind of language and see if it makes any difference. I I thought it was powerful because it goes into, it's, it's another thing about when you go to the next practice about breaking the conflict pattern and the way language is integral and seeing how it's done. Um, Why do we have this tendency to view situations in much simpler terms? And what's the impact of that? Well, when we were in earlier millennia on the planet, you know, when a tiger was chasing us, uh, it was very helpful for us to be able to narrow our focus so that we could escape the situation that would have eaten us alive, quite literally. It can sometimes be helpful, right? When you're in a crisis situation, it is absolutely helpful, even still today, uh, absolutely helpful to focus on exactly what's happening. It's me versus this other person. How am I going to get out of here? How am I going to escape? What's going to happen? So we have this fight or flight built right into our DNA. And that can be useful, but 
when we're stuck in recurring conflict and we're not being chased by a tiger or it's not a crisis moment in terms of our physical well-being or safety, then that fight-or-flight response is not particularly helpful because typically we're stuck in recurring conflicts because we've tried to get out, we've tried to figure it out, and we can't, typically because it's caused by these multiple different factors. So what I advise people to do is take a moment and take out a piece of paper, it could be on the screen or regular piece of paper, and write out who is involved in this situation and what are the multiple factors that might be influencing the situation. So sometimes it could take a minute or so to, to get going, but I find it doesn't take people more than a few minutes to fill up a piece of paper with, oh, wow, I thought this was about me and my head of sales. But actually, it's also about the whole sales team. And it's also about the whole executive team because they're all influencing how I'm viewing the situation and the sales team is influenced by what decision my salesperson and I make going forward. And hey, oh, it's also about how the head of sales, how she grew up and the leadership lessons she learned as a child from her parents. And oh, it's also about how I grew up and the lessons I learned about entrepreneurship and financial stability and all of that. So we start to see pretty quickly, and it really does help to map this out, particularly if you're a visual person, but even for people who aren't, just to map it out, to, to notice, wow, this is a, a bit more complex than I had thought. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've done this exercise with folks, both clients and students, and you just see the light bulbs go off within minutes of asking people to put these things down on paper not only the light bulbs of, oh, wow, now I see how I got stuck or how we got stuck, but also light bulbs of, oh, my gosh, if that person who I wasn't even thinking was even a part of the situation did X, Y, Z or intervened in this way, wow, you know, things might be different. Or, hmm, I never thought about my role as one where I'm a mediator in the situation and I'm also a participant in the situation or a party to the situation. So, you know, this can bring up a lot of real aha moments for people that are very helpful to shifting uh, the dynamic in this situation. How can conflict mapping help leaders achieve optimal outcomes? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, author of Optimal Outcomes. So one of the tools you identify in your book is conflict mapping. Can you tell us more about conflict mapping and how can one engage in conflict mapping and are are there any available resources to do this? Yes. I really wanted to make sure that this book was going to actually be helpful to real people dealing with real life situations at work, at home, and in public life. So I made sure that at the end of every chapter, there are very specific instructions and guidelines to help you do all of the things that are in the chapter itself. So absolutely, at the end of each chapter, you can walk yourself through how to do each of the things, and in this particular case, how to do conflict mapping. And on the website, again, optimaloutcomesbook.com, you can find in the resources section the piece about conflict mapping, and um, there's a whole PDF that you can download. Also, there's something actually very cool in that PDF. We found online technology that you can use to build your map online. So you can either print out the PDF and write your map out by hand, or you can follow the link and it'll take you to this very cool software that will help you build your map online. Um, So just go to optimaloutcomesbook.com and that's all there for you. Go to the, the resources section and look for map, conflict map. The third practice involves emotions. How can you put your emotions to work for you? Well, the first piece is to acknowledge what you're feeling in the first place, which again, is sometimes easier for, for some of us to do than others, but know thyself, right? So the first thing is sit and pause and notice what am I feeling right now? The next piece is often just by being with our feelings, they will settle naturally, right? So if I'm feeling very angry, Noticing that I'm feeling angry can help take some of the edge off the anger. But of course, despite many leaders in the fields of spirituality and Buddhist thought, you know, advising us to do this, my own personal experience and that of helping many, many people over two decades of work is that this doesn't always work, right? It doesn't always help to sit and notice our feelings. So what should we do if we're sitting and noticing what we're feeling, and yet the feelings are still kind of coming at us and very strong and overwhelming. So then what I advise is ask yourself, what messages might my emotions be trying to send me? So there are some pretty typical ones. Anger is often alerting us to the fact that something doesn't feel fair to us. Something isn't sitting right with us. There's something happening in this situation that isn't working for us. And just acknowledging that can be very eye-opening and liberating. And our work then is to ask ourselves, what is that thing that's not working for us? And what's a constructive action? So the final step here is to ask yourself, what's a constructive action that I could take based on the messages that I am hearing from these emotions that they're sending me. Right? So that's an example about feeling angry. 
well, a constructive. So if we think of all of the great civil rights leaders, so the Nelson Mandela's and the Gandhi's and the Martin Luther King Jr.'s of the world, Rosa Parks, what was it that they did with their anger? One of the things they did was to notice, right? They didn't pretend they weren't angry. They didn't cover up their anger and push it down and make it go, try to make it go away. No, they channeled their anger for constructive action. So they said, I feel angry. The message is there's something going on in society that does not work. There's not justice here, and we need justice. So they would make a request. We need to bring justice to this situation. And then they would make very specific requests of other people. They would take action themselves that was constructive in order to build the society that they were looking to build. And that is more or less what I'm asking people to do. So uh, we don't, we're not all going to have that capacity that those amazing leaders had, but we can use their example and we can think, of our, think to ourselves, you know, what would, <laughs> what would these leaders have done? What's a constructive action that I can take here? So that's one way to help our emotions work in our favor rather than to be so overwhelmed by them that we act in ways we're going to regret later. That's a good point, Jennifer. What is an emotion trap? Yeah. These are ways that our emotions can get the best of us. It's almost as if kind of we're walking along and then, boom, we fall right into a trap. We fall into a hole in the ground. There are a few different ways that we tend to experience and also express our emotions. And depending on our constitution, the way we were raised, the messages we got as we were growing up about how to both experience and express our emotions, we're likely to fall into one of three different emotion traps uh, that can keep us stuck in conflict. And so, again, noticing which of these three emotion traps do we tend to get stuck in can help us avoid falling into these traps and instead to take more constructive action. So, for example, some people have these knee-jerk reactions, myself included, right? If I feel angry, boom, you know, much easier for me to kind of lash out or get, uh, show my anger and express my anger by either yelling or acting in a frustrated way. Um, so that's knee-jerk reaction. I'm experiencing the anger very intensely inside of myself and then also expressing it in, in an outward way. Other people on the kind of opposite end of the spectrum may not experience their emotions in an intense way, so maybe low intensity of experiencing emotions. And also, you know, we're, we're taught that it's not okay to express our emotions. And so, for example, um, I had a client who his father had had a heart attack and his sister called him in the middle of his work day. He was in the middle of a meeting. His sister called him um, a couple of times in a row, so he went out to go take the call. She tells him that, it, that their father just had a heart attack. He comes back into the meeting as if nothing had happened, continues the meeting, ha- goes throughout his day, and a couple of days later lets some of those colleagues that he was in the meeting with know that his father had a heart attack, and now he has to go and travel across the country and go be with his father, who was recovering, thankfully. And his colleagues just couldn't believe that his, his sister had called him to tell him that, that the father had had a heart attack because he acted like nothing had even happened. So for some people, this can be adaptive and helpful on the one hand, but on the other hand, can cause us to not 
be able to have empathy for other people or prevents other people from showing empathy for us because they have no idea what we're feeling. We barely know what we're feeling. So that's another one of the emotion traps is what I just described. And then another one is we experience emotions very intensely inside of us, but we've been taught not to express them outwardly. And so we're kind of caught in this place of, you know, thinking that we're covering it up. But of course, our emotions ooze out anyway. So we see other people kind of seething with resentment or they look so angry like they're going to scream, but, you know, it's kind of they're trying, you can tell that they're trying to cover it up. Also can get in our way, not, not always particularly helpful and can, can cause us to get stuck in conflict. So, again, if you, if you go to the website and you, you go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment, uh, you'll find this emotion traps assessment as, as well, and you can diagnose which one of these three traps do you tend to fall into, or you can have your friends and colleagues take it and see which of these do they tend to fall into. And then it, it helps you have the insight of, you know, this is what I tend to do. What would it look like to break the pattern, break the habit, do something different? The next practice is the difference between ideal values and shadow values. How does the conflict between these sorts of values foster the conflict loop that we find ourselves in? Ideal values, like I said before, are things that we care about that we're proud to say we care about. So these are often things like, for example, classic ideal values, love, adventure, spirituality, healthy living, um, versus shadow values, things that we really care about in life that we're not proud to say that we care about, that we may not even be willing to admit to our own selves that we care about, that can then ooze out anyway so other people see them. (laughs) We think we're covering them up. We think we're pushing these things down, but they ooze out anyway, and they drive our behavior, and they get us caught, stuck in conflict. So, for example, classic shadow values are things like recognition, status, financial security, things depending on the culture, right? And each one of us has ideal values and shadow values that might be completely different. So when I do this exercise with groups, we sometimes anonymously go put on a flip chart. uh, People write up what their ideal and shadow values are, and we see the same exact values on both lists. For some people, love is a shadow value. They do love their family. They do love their friends. But they were taught from a very young age, it's not okay to show love. Or competition. For some people, that's an ideal value. I love being competitive in that, you know, I'm a, I play sports and, and I love competition. And for other people, again, myself included, competition can be something that, you know, I was taught from a, a young age was going to help me get where I wanted to go in life, but also was not socially acceptable. So I pushed it down and then it oozes out in, a, in, in ways that are not helpful when I'm in relationship with other people. So I actually tell a story about this in the book. The next practice I want to talk about, and you, you point out in your book in reoccurring conflicts, uh, people are typically focused on what has happened in the past and who's to blame. And you underscore the fact that it is important to get beyond this situation and get out of the loop, break it, and get into a pattern-breaking behavior. Uh, And you point out that to do that, 
an individual should engage their imagination and imagine an ideal future. Um, why is this so important? The best way that I know how to help people imagine a different future is to help you get out of your thinking brain and into your imagination is to use your five senses and your emotions to imagine what it would feel like then, both tactilely and emotionally. What would it look like then? What it, would it smell like then? What would it sound like then? So use all five of your senses. We typically focus on seeing and hearing in our culture, but challenge yourself to go beyond that. So for example, um, I've had people say, oh, I'm going to go out for lovely dinner and I'm going to take out you know, my colleague who I've been having these struggles with. We're going to go out for dinner and I can smell the bottle of wine that we're going to share together and I can smell the good food um, in the restaurant. And so that's one way to use your imagination about what will you smell, what will you taste. That's one way to engage your imagination. Jennifer, you introduced the concept of pattern-breaking paths, uh, PBP. Could you tell us more about it and how one can design those? Yes. You want to look ahead and ask yourself, what is one simple step that I can take to break the pattern of the past? And typically that simply means doing something different from whatever my habit, my conflict habit has been in this situation. But you don't want to stop there because if you're stuck in a complex situation, it's not likely one thing that got you stuck and you've probably been stuck for a while. So it's probably not one thing that's going to get you out. So you want to kind of see yourself as building a path forward. So you, I, I actually encourage people to start inside of themselves. And this might involve, like we were talking about before, a pause practice, right? What would it look like to sit quietly for 30 seconds on my train commute each morning or while I'm walking down the street to go get lunch, whatever I decide I'm going to do. But what would it look like to sit and ask myself, what's going on with this situation? How am I feeling? How am I doing? So that can always be a nice first step in a pattern-breaking path. A next step in a pattern-breaking path might be reaching out to one other person on your conflict map. It could be the person who is the most obvious other person, like the person who you first put on the map initially, or it might not be. Right? Sometimes the power of doing that mapping exercise is that we see someone else on the map whose help we could leverage to change the situation or make things better. So this may be reaching out to that other person and saying, you know, could I take you out for coffee and talk to you about a situation that I'm in and get your advice? Or you know, something like that. Of course, we want to be thoughtful, and of course, and this is the next practice of being thoughtful about the unintended consequences of our, our behavior. So I'm by no means suggesting that we should take someone else on the map out for coffee and then by, by doing so kind of involve them in an inappropriate or unhelpful way. Um, we don't want to make things worse, so we want to be thinking ahead. Um, and that's one way that all these practices relate to each other. So on the one hand, they are sequential, but on the other hand, they all interact with one another because we want to be thinking ahead about building this path. How important is it for leaders to minimize conflict in order to achieve outcomes? I'll explore this question and so much more 
when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, author of Optimal Outcomes. So what you're talking about when you're testing your path, is that construed as a mini experiment that you outline in your book? Yeah, absolutely. So if your second step on your path is I'm going to take someone out for coffee and ask them for advice or suggest to them, hey, here's what I'm thinking about the situation that we've been stuck in. What do you think about this? And if that would be pattern-breaking for you, right, if you've been fighting as a group around a board table and now you're saying, hey, I'm going to take one person from that group and ask them out for coffee, take them off-site, do something different, um, if that's pattern-breaking for you, then that could be considered a kind of experiment or Something that could be an experiment is, hey, I'm going to sit quietly, which I never do. I'm, I'm typically, you know, if I feel angry, I'm typically like picking up the phone right away and calling at someone and screaming at them. Um, doing a, a, a mini experiment could be the next time I get bad news, I'm not going to reach for the phone. I'm going to take three deep breaths and see how that goes. And then I'm going to ask myself, how did it go? Well, it helped because... I didn't make things worse by picking up the phone and yelling at somebody, but on the, fl- on the negative side, it was really hard because I had to control myself and I didn't know what to do and I was freaking out and then I had no one to, to, to unleash that on and that was difficult for me. So just reviewing constantly how, did, how does it go when I do these experiments is helpful. So what other ways besides many experiments can an individual engage in practicing or testing their path? The best thing to do is to ask yourself, if I take X, Y, Z path. So for example, I was advising a client who said, I really am just tired of this. I am going to fire my head of sales. And I said to him, okay, let's think about this. So if you fire your head of sales, what might be some things that might happen. And so this forced him to think ahead about the consequences of his behavior. And I asked him, think not only about the impact of your firing this head of sales on you, and not only on her, but also on other people in the organization. What might happen for them? What stories might they tell themselves about the fact that you're firing her? So just asking yourself to think ahead about the impact of your own behavior, not only on yourself, but also on other people, and not only on yourself and other people now, but also on yourself and other, others midterm and long-term. So, you know, five minutes from now, five months from now, and five years from now, what are going to be, what might be some of the consequences of my actions 
that can go a long way towards helping us realize, oh, this pattern-breaking path that I think is so pattern-breaking actually might come back and shoot me in the foot. (laughs) It's not going to do what I thought it was going to do. And that can save us a lot of pain and heartache from happening down the road. So I highly recommend thinking ahead. So the last practice for the optimal outcome method is choosing an outcome. And before we actually choose it, one of the things you mention are four common sources of hesitation. These are the things that keep us from actually achieving an optimal outcome. Would you tell us more about these four hesitations? When we are stuck in conflict, one of the reasons why we hesitate to move forward with our pattern-breaking path is that we are stuck in fantasy land. We are fantasizing about an ideal future, which I did ask you to do before, right? In, in practice five, I asked you to imagine an ideal future, and now in practice eight, I'm telling you, hey, hold on a minute. If you, are, if you are fantasizing about something that's not realistic, given the other people, given the constraints of the situation, given other people's preferences, this is going to cause you to hesitate from moving forward. And guess what? It should We do not want you moving ahead with something. And by the way, even if you tried to, you couldn't. If you're fantasizing about firing your head of sales, but you need her to stay because she is integral to the business, or if you lost her, she would take every single one of your clients with you, you're going to pay so many costs for doing that, you actually may not want to fire her. You're fantasizing about it. And you know why you're fantasizing about it? Because it makes you feel better because you're stuck in conflict. And it's very lovely to be fantasizing about something that couldn't, that you know will never happen in reality, but it takes the sting out of where you are, which is angry, frustrated, tired, pissed, and you don't want to be experiencing those negative feelings. So you're fantasizing about something that could never happen in reality. So we don't want you to stay stuck in that fantasy land. And that's why we call these optimal outcomes. So an optimal outcome is not one where you've imagined your ideal future like we were talking about before, but that ideal future doesn't work for the actual reality of the situation that you're facing. An optimal outcome is one that takes into account both what your ideal scenario might be in your imagination and the constraints of the reality of the people and the situation that you're facing. That's an optimal outcome. It maximizes both reality and your ideal future and your imagination. So that's how we get over or we deal with these sources of hesitation. We don't want you fantasizing. And by the way, people fantasize both about what they imagine um, they could do with the people that they're dealing with, and that we also tend to fantasize about walking away or never seeing again the people in our situation. And sometimes those things are possible, in which case they're not fantasies at all, and we may be hesitating to walk away because we think it's not possible when, in fact, it absolutely is possible, and we've been telling ourselves a story that it's not. So this chapter also helps you um, determine which one is it. Am I actually able to walk away? Or is that something that I'm going to pay so many costs for doing that it actually isn't really a feasible possibility? And that's how we, by doing this exercise, 
comparing these costs and benefits, which again, people can find resources for to help walk you through the process of doing this online. That's how we determine what our optimal outcome actually is and choose it, choose it consciously rather than having it choose you unconsciously and staying stuck in conflict by default. Jennifer, perhaps you could share some anecdotes of this process in action. Yes. Well, again, something that was so important to me in writing the book was to make sure that there were anecdote after anecdote after anecdote of all different kinds of people who used this methodology in real life to deal with real life issues and problems that they were facing, recurring conflicts. And that's what the book is just chock full of. It's based on my experience consulting to CEOs and leaders on teams and managers and regular people and students of mine. So there's some family um, conflicts that are written about in the book. And also there's a very personal story that runs throughout the book about me and my own mom and how she and I learned how to free ourselves using this methodology as well from a conflict that had been brewing between us for a very long time. So um, absolutely, that's the, whole, that's the whole point of this work is that it's really uh, usable by real people. And I encourage people to, to pick up the book and, and take a look at it. And also, even if you don't pick up the book, you should go online and download all of these resources. And there's, a, there's just a ton. So, Jennifer, um, as we come to the close of this conversation, I was wondering, folks who are interested in in reading your book, how can they pick up a copy? The easiest way is optimaloutcomesbook.com. There's everything there that you need. And, of course, um, we're on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, and the book is on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Michael. That means a lot to me. It's been great to be in conversation with you. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the mission of the U.S. General Services Administration's Technology Transformation Services, or TTS? How does TTS enhance public experience with federal government agencies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Anil Cherian, Director of GSA's Technology Transformation Services and Deputy Commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Network.